Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance. And in this episode, this is going to be a Q&A episode specifically, some questions and some answers. I've been getting a lot of questions via Facebook or Twitter, or for those that know me personally, via email, text or phone. And I know that all of you may not have had access to them. So I decided to collate some very common questions that I've received over the several months that I've been doing this podcast. Now, this is a non-traditional episode, which means I will get straight into the questions rather than repeating my five-step mantras. So here we go. Question number one. I have never invested before outside of super. Where do I start? Now, that's actually a very common question that I get, and it's a very broad question. And... In my humble view, I think there are two things an investment must do to qualify for me. The first one is the investment must grow in value over the long term. And the second one is the investment, uh, you know, while I own it, must pay me an income which has to be relatively regularly. Now, we can talk about the investment being low fees, etc. That's a separate thing. But there are two things that investments must do for me in general. Now, to answer your question about you've never invested before outside of super, where do you start? You need to pick what type of investor you are. Are you an active investor or are you a passive investor? Now, an active investor basically picks um, you know, stocks based on, you know, fundamental analysis and a passive investor basically, you know, buys stocks or a broadly diversified ETF and we'll go into that a bit later because I've got questions about that and keep putting money into those investments long term at regular intervals. Now, most of my listeners are probably, dare I say, going to be passive investors Um, and most would want to do it for the long term, and most are likely to have other careers or family to focus on. So, for example, my principal career is medicine. I don't, you know, claim to be an expert investor. So, for me, the passive investing route works out the best option. So, you need to select the type of investor you are. And the second thing you need to do is where do you actually want to invest into? Are you going to invest into property and that be residential or commercial or even residential, um, uh, sorry, real estate investment trusts? Or do you want to invest into the stock market and how are you going to do that? Do you want to invest in bonds? 
long-term deposits? And I guess the short answer to that is I'm a great fan of investing into the stock market because over the long term, the stock market returns, that is the index funds or ETFs that I buy, over the long term are most likely to return better than most of the other asset classes, including property. Now, I'm talking about long term, not you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Again, I'm talking about 20 plus years, preferably 40 plus years. Now, the third thing you need to think about is how much you're going to be investing. So what is your investing amount, your starting amount? What is your interval amount? So you're going to be investing weekly, fortnightly, monthly, yearly, six monthly, etc. And what is your time horizon? So generally speaking, my general recommendation is investing should be at least for 20 plus years. Um, Most mainstream financial people would probably say at least five to 10 years. I've just doubled that to 20 plus years because I think that's when you're going to see the real fruits of your investment. Now, once you've come up with answers to this, you need to think about the lowest fee structure which would enable you to invest into your desired asset classes, which brings me to the concept of brokers. Now, to buy ETFs or shares which are traded on the stock exchange, you need to have a broker. To buy a managed fund, which is generally not listed, called an unlisted index fund, you don't need a broker. You buy directly from the company that sells these. So Vanguard happens to be the biggest player in the market globally. I use them. They're very reliable. I find them very simple, easy, effective, and low cost. Now, if you were to go ahead and use a broker to buy ETFs or individual shares, each time you use a broker to buy and sell, you pay a brokerage fee. It's a bit like buying and selling property. You kind of need a real estate for the most part, um, a real estate agent for the most part, which means you need to pay their fees. Now, they are the middleman in all this. So I guess a broker is the middleman in terms of between yourself and the stock exchange. In order for you to facilitate a transaction, you need a broker to do that. Now, you could very well avoid brokers altogether by buying unlisted managed funds or index funds like I do, and that's fine. But you need to pay attendance, uh, sorry, attention to the fees as often they're slightly more expensive. So in terms of brokers, there's multiple brokers in the Australian market. There's Comsec, which is the main player, NAB Trade, ANZ Trade, eToro. Uh, There's Stake, there's Self Wealth, there's Superhero, which is a relatively new player. So all of them are relatively, uh, you know, I guess trusted to some respect. Um, Self-Wealth seems to be the main low-cost brokerage firm that a lot of people tend to use. And I think more recently, you're allowed to buy US stocks and ETFs using Self-Wealth. But the big behemoth out there is Comsec. Now, I just buy the unlisted ASX 300 Vanguard Index Fund, which basically mimics the ASX 300 Index. I don't pay brokerage. But the management fee is slightly higher when compared to its equivalent ETF, which is VAS. And uh, unfortunately, recently, Vanguard have changed their structure when it comes to investment accounts. So you need to pay attention to their fee structure. Uh, They're just one player in the game. So there are loads of others that sell index funds or ETFs, BetaShares, BlackRock, iShares. 
Uh, you can even invest using micro-investing platforms like Rays or Spaceship Voyager. So there's plenty of options. But I guess for a question like that, you've never invested before. I think the first thing you need to do is learn about investing, what type of investing options are there, passive versus active, and what type of investments you want to do, whether it's going to be property, stocks, bonds, etc. And then, of course, once you've learned the nitty-gritties, then you can start investing outside of super. So hopefully that gives you a broad answer um, with a few specifics in there about how to get started in investing outside of super. The next question is, Dev, you talk about index funds versus ETFs. What is the main difference? That's also a very good question. And if you're interested, I've specifically talked about the point system for the index funds and the index weighted system in episodes 103 and 104, um, which I think it's good revision if you're new to this. But look, in essence, essentially, they're pretty much very similar, except you can invest in a managed fund, which I like to call an index fund or invest in an exchange-traded fund which tracks a particular index. Now, indexes are basically scoring point systems. So, for example, the ASX 200 is an index, the S&P 500 is an index, um, and the NASDAQ Composite is an index, or the Dow Jones is an index. An index fund or ETF can be very broad. So, for example, it can track the entire world index, or can be very specific. For example, it can track only companies that mine gold. It really depends on what you want to invest in. ETFs essentially trade on the stock exchange like stocks, but that ETF tracks the entire index that it's designed to track. Whereas an unlisted index fund or a managed fund is not traded on the stock exchange it's literally bought and sold at the end of the day, whereas ETFs can be bought and sold multiple times a day. So I guess for the purposes of investing, if you're a buy and hold investor and you're going to be holding that for the very long periods of time, it kind of doesn't really matter because you're not buying and selling multiple times a day. So I've just decided to buy the unlisted managed funds. There are some tax implications for that. Um, but you might find an ETF structured relatively similarly, except that you can buy and sell multiple times per day might be a better option for you. For me, I only buy. I've never sold anything that I've bought as part of my investment portfolio. So I don't plan to sell anything. So it doesn't make sense for me to be able to trade ETFs on the stock exchange multiple times per day. Um, and so I don't really use a brokerage at all. Now, I guess a simpler way to think about all this is from, you know, an index fund or ETF point of view, you know, there are 25 million Australians. And supposing you wanted to invest in the Australian market, um, 25 million Australians need to use electricity, gas, water supplies. So they're utilities. 
Uh, that includes telecommunications and internet, for example. 25 million Australians need to eat. 25 million Australians need healthcare. 25 million Australians need to use some form of transportation, whether it be car, bike, public transport, bus, etc. Um, you know, at least once or twice in their life. 25 million people need to brush their teeth, sometimes twice a day. 25 million people may need to travel, which means using some form of energy sources, oil, you know, gas, coal, etc. 25 million people will need to have some form of payment mechanism. So cash, cards, um, loans, and 25 million people may need to use a bank at some point in their life. So you get the idea where I'm going with this, and that is instead of investing in each separate sector or business, which means picking and choosing stocks on the ASX, which represent each of those sectors, you can just buy the entire stock market index, which represents the biggest companies in Australia. And this index in Australia is called the S&P ASX 200. There's also another one called S&P ASX 300. It literally means the top 200 or top 300 companies listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Now, here's another way of thinking about it. Suppose you walk into Coles or Woolies. The entire supermarket has products. Each product resembles a company. Coles or Woolies resembles the entire stock market. And the supermarket has shelves for milk, pasta, rice, fruit, vegetables, toiletries, in all the different sectors. And this resembles sectors within the ASX. Now, each aisle may represent entire countries or continents in terms of the companies that are listed on that country's or continent stock exchange. So when you walk into Coles next or Woolies next, think about it like this. Each time you're buying a product, you're contributing to the profits of the company that makes that product. Now, just imagine that if you just bought pieces of that said companies rather than buying the product, that is what investing is. And if you buy the entire supermarket or a segment of the supermarket, that is what index funds and ETFs are. So hopefully that answers your questions about the major differences between index funds and ETFs. But if you're just a buy and hold investor for the long term, it's much of a muchness. I think the most important thing is to start investing and start investing early. The next question is, the stock market seems like a risky way to invest. Is this true? That's a very good question, and I think it's absolutely critical to understand the difference between risk and volatility, because they're very different concepts. Uh, I'd probably refer to this person's, um, you know, if they want to learn a little bit more about it, then refer them to episode 48 that I've done for a very detailed breakdown. But if you have a look at the stock market returns over the long term, there is almost negligible risk associated with it. And I say this with relatively good confidence. And over any 40 or 50 year period, mostly, particularly in the last 100 years, the stock market almost always goes up. Now, why is this? 
Now, this is likely because largely humanity does better with each generation when compared to the previous generations. When we do better, we have better standards of living, which means we have better products, better healthcare, better efficiency, and therefore over the long term, better results. But when you look at the short term period, and 2020 is a good example, particularly at the start of 2020, when the market crashed 30% almost overnight, this is volatility. But the volatile market is actually very good for the investors for two reasons. For those that are simply wanting to spend time in the market, they keep investing, which means when the market is lower and cheaper, they buy for their set interval amount. For example, $1,000 when the market is lower and cheaper may buy more stock when the market is 30% cheaper. When the market rises again, they get to buy less stock. But over the long term, this averages out. And this concept is called dollar cost averaging. And I've done it uh, an early episode on this. If you go back and want to have a listen to the details of it. For the active investor, it's a great time to buy more stock at 30% discount. The analogy is that when you enter Coles or Woolies and want to buy toilet paper and your favourite brand is now 30% cheaper, why would you buy less toilet paper? It's counterintuitive to do so. So it makes complete sense to buy more toilet paper for less overall cost when there's a sale. So hopefully that gives you a bit of perspective on risk versus volatility. It's a very important concept to understand. The next question is, so Dev, if I have debt, do I pay it off? Or do I use that extra money to start investing? Another very good question. Another very common question that I get all the time. Do you pay off debt or use that extra money to invest? Now, there are two forms of debt. Debt which is deductible in its costs and debt which is non-deductible in its costs. For example, personal loans, car loans, principal place of residence loans, credit card loans, they're all non-deductible. This means any interest charged on those types of debt is generally not tax deductible. Debt, which is used to invest, for example, margin loans, investment property loans, the costs associated with those types of debts are tax deductible. So the aim of the game, that is if you have any debt, which I personally don't like any forms of debt in general, but if you do have any debt, the aim of the game is to maximise deductible debt and minimise non-deductible debt. So paying off any debt gives you a guaranteed return. Investing is not guaranteed, but over the long term, it's likely to work out much better investing into the stock market rather than paying off debt. But being debt-free is completely serene. It gives you a peace of mind at night, which investing may not. Here's the deal. I deal with sickness, illness, and unfortunately death a lot of the times. I'm a doctor and my whole profession deals with patients who've come into, unfortunately, sickness, injuries, or even death. And recently, a patient who underwent a life-saving cardiac procedure came back to tell me, At the time, just before going into theatre, 
all they could think about was the fact that they had no debt. So if the procedure were to go wrong and they died on the table, they would be happy to have left their family with no debt, which means they're in a much better position when compared to leaving them with any debt. This level of peace of mind, money or investing can't buy, no matter how much you invest in the stock market. And that's why personal finance or investing is not just a numbers game. Yes, if you invest outside of your debt over the long term, you're probably going to end up better. Um, And one of the things that I see on forums and online and Facebook, etc., is people play the numbers game a lot. I can tell you the numbers game is just one aspect of personal finance and investing. Once you have family, kids, partners, dependents, greater family, it's a different ballgame. So you need to assess your personal risk and come up with your own answer, whether in your own life, it's better to pay off your debt or invest that money into something else like the stock market. The next question is, is 20% pay off money inclusive of superannuation or mortgage payment principal amount? The short answer is it does not include superannuation or any principal amounts as part of the mortgage payment. The 20% pay yourself money from your after-tax income is on top of the superannuation and any mortgage payments that you may be making. The reality is the more you put in, the better, but you need to start somewhere. So if you start using this system, you're likely to end up with more wealth in the long term. Now, I can understand that if you can't afford to do the superannuation and the 20% pay yourself money and pay off your principal place of residence monthly amount, uh, that's principal and interest, I guess I would count those two if, if you can't afford to do that. But generally speaking, I don't count those debt payments or super payments as part of the 20% pay yourself money. The pay yourself money comes off the top And you've got to start doing that, particularly if you're new to the game, do it right at the start of your paycheck so that it never forget it. And then let your superannuation accumulate on the side and pay your mortgage debt off on the side as you normally would. The next question is, so Dev, where can I find you for financial advice? And how much are the fees for it? Thanks very much for that question. This is actually not an uncommon question I get. Now, I have to be honest and straight up here. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant. And I'm not a financial planner. I'm a doctor who's in clinical practice who has a specific interest in personal finance. This is largely because a lot of doctors do really silly things with their money and I thought about how best to help them. That is by discussing basic financial principles and concepts and I do it for free. Now I started this podcast also to leave a blueprint for my two young children in the rare event that their dad is not around to teach them basics of personal finance, investing, etc. It just turned out much bigger than I expected 
because a lot of listeners started plugging in and my simple message resonated with a lot of them. I'm in no way in any form or way competing against credentialed financial advisors, planners or accountants. That would be a dumb move. They're experts. Now, when I need health advice, I learn about it, but ultimately I go to my GP. Yes, I have a GP, even though that I'm a doctor. I visit my GP regularly to ensure my health is up to scratch. I don't do it myself. So in that regard, the aim of this podcast is to empower and educate you, the listener, with the basics of the financial principles and concepts out there so you can take it to your credentialed advisor and discuss it with them. So don't make financial decisions based on me talking about concepts and principles on this podcast channel. I suggest you take it to your credentialed financial advisor before making any real decisions. Now, I am available for chairing or facilitating speaking engagements. I've got a few coming up. If you are a financial advisor or planner or wealth firm and want me to participate in a session, I'm all too happy to do so. Just Facebook me to start the discussion. I know a lot of wealth companies want a doctor on board to facilitate a session, which they're pitching to their clients who are largely healthcare professionals. I'm happy to help in this regard, but I am no way a credentialed financial advisor. And I don't charge fees for my podcast episodes. The next question is, so Dev, I have noticed that Spotify doesn't include the first 21 episodes of your podcast channel. Why is that? The answer to this question genuinely beats me. I have no idea. I've contacted them, tweeted them, Facebooked them, emailed them. I haven't gotten anywhere as to why this is. I've checked the RSS feeds. I'm the tech novice, so I've done everything that I possibly can in trying to make those episodes available. Now, platforms-wise, Anchor, CastBox, Google, Apple, they seem to be the main platforms most of my listeners use anyway. The other option is for all of my listeners to email Spotify all at once and hopefully they will take notice. But I don't know the genuine answer to this question. But good question though, and I get this a lot. The next question is, Dev, I find all this money stuff very stressful, especially since I joined multiple Facebook groups about money. It's actually made my life more difficult. Any tips? Thanks very much for that question. And I'm sorry to hear that the talk about money investing has caused you more stress than probably you deserve. And look, I'm a big advocate of the concept that money is just a tool. So we have to use it as a tool. And it does not bring you happiness. Comparing yourself to others may make things worse. In fact, I don't regularly watch financial media, nor do I religiously contribute too much to the online groups unless I find the post interesting or I see the poster clearly heading in the wrong direction. That's why, for me, I've designed my podcasts based on principles and concepts rather than what should I do or what should you do, what companies should you invest in, etc. The reality is, 
If you just paid yourself 20%, chose an index fund which suits your goals, invested in it for the long term, reinvested dividends and automated it as much of it as possible, and never did anything else, that is almost certain to yield you the best results at the lowest costs with the least amount of stress. So my sort of advice is if you don't want to participate online, don't do it. But you need to have a system or structure which is easily you know, replicable in your own life when it comes to your personal finance. And really, once you set it up, that's all you need to do. You don't need to pay attention to it check your investments, it just keeps growing. And it's really, really simple. And you can just focus on your life, focus on your career, focus on your interests and hobbies. And one day, 30, 40 years later, you'll open up the investment account and you'll have more money than you probably ever will need. The next question is, Hey Dev, any tips on getting personal insurance? This is a very common question I get. Look, the personal insurance industry, especially income protection industry, is going to change a lot from the 1st of July this year. It's already started changing from last year. Remember, the main aim of insurance is just that. It's a safety net. It's not designed for you to profit from. Now, agreed value policies are going out the window or already have done so if you're a new customer. Indemnity value, which is based on the 12 months of recent income, is practically the way to go. And you need to learn the difference between a stepped premium versus a level premium. So you need to know the difference. Um, And in summary, basically, a stepped premium increases in premiums every year in addition to inflation, whereas level premiums don't generally increase in addition to inflation. And you need to learn about the types of personal insurance. Um, There's four main types in Australia, income protection, total and permanent disability, trauma slash critical illness insurance, and life insurance. And each of those has a specific function. And you need to learn about personal insurance within super, because it's mandatory to have some level of life or income protection within super in Australia. But you need to also learn about having these insurances outside of super policies. Um, And also there's something called the five-year rule, which will come into effect this year or next year. And that is the policies will need to be renewed or revised every five years. Now, this won't affect actual policyholders already. It's only for new policyholders. And I've seen numerous posts online about IP premiums rising significantly, which may force some people off the IP policies for income protection. And when they rejoin, they'll be bound by the new rules. So it's important to know the rules. And just like car insurance, builder's insurance, contents insurance, which we all subscribe to without batting an eyelid, we need to think about personal insurance policies in the same light. And I think it's a really important thing. And again, I'm a doctor. I see patients all the time getting injured, getting ill, and we're able to provide them with the best care that they can. But I often wonder what happens during their illness from a financial point of view if they don't have insurance. So it's something that I've learned and I've had personal insurance for a very long time. 
So I think if you're new to the game, get involved, learn the rules, and then get insurance, get covered as quickly and as affordably as possible. The next question, and the very last question for this episode is, who is that person who sometimes asks questions on the podcast? Did you want to take that question? Sure, I'll take that question. I'm Dev's daughter, and I'm trying to get more involved in finances so I can learn the basics and the foundations early in my life. That's actually a very good point. Um, I think kids need to learn about money early in life. Um, They need to know the value of money early in life. And personally, I think it's a great opportunity for me to spend time with my daughter rather than doing the usual things, which we do anyway, which is play tennis, go to the park, watch a movie. But this is a very unique way of spending family time together. And I think talking about money should be commonplace in the household with the aim of teaching and learning. Kids don't need to know exactly how much money you make or how much expenses you might have, but they need to learn that money is a factor of life. It is not the only factor of life, but it is a factor of life. It doesn't simply grow on trees and that there is a process to earning it, saving it and investing it for the future. Now, that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for asking these questions and I'd like to thank my co-host today. Many of these questions are asked quite often. So I thought I would reach a bigger audience by creating an episode specifically about it. Until next time, this is Dev Rucker, Personal Finance Q&A episode. And as always, please stay safe. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.